Chapter Two B of Roderick Hudson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Well, these models began, Mister Stryker. You put them into an attitude, I suppose. An attitude, exactly. And then you sit down and look at them. You must not sit too long. You must go at your clay and try to build up something that looks like them. Well, there you are with your model in an attitude on one side, yourself in an attitude too, I suppose, on the other, and your pile of clay in the middle building up, as you say. So you pass the morning. After that I hope you go out and take a walk and rest from your exertions. Unquestionably, but to a sculptor who loves his work there is no time lost. Everything he looks at teaches or suggests something. That's a tempting doctrine to young men with a taste for sitting by the hour with the page unturned, watching the flies buzz or the frost melt on the window-pane. Our young friend in this way must have laid up stores of information which I never suspected. Very likely, said Rowland, with an unresentful smile, he will prove some day the completer artist for some of those lazy reveries. This theory was apparently very grateful to Mrs. Hudson, who had never had the case put for her son with such ingenious hopefulness, and found herself disrelishing the singular situation of seeming to side against her own flesh and blood with a lawyer whose conversational tone betrayed the habit of cross-questioning. "'My son, then,' she ventured to ask, "'my son has great—what you would call great powers?' "'To my sense, very great powers.' Poor Mrs. Hudson actually smiled, broadly, gleefully, and glanced at Miss Garland as if to invite her to do likewise. But the young girl's face remained serious, like the eastern sky, when the opposite sunset is too feeble to make it glow. "'Do you really know?' she asked, looking at Rowland. "'One cannot know in such a matter save after proof, and proof takes time, but one can believe.' "'And you believe?' "'I believe.' But even then Miss Garland vouchsafed no smile. Her face became graver than ever. "'Well, well,' said Mrs. Hudson, "'we must hope that it is all for the best.' Mr. Stryker eyed his old friend for a moment with a look of some displeasure. He saw that this was but a cunning feminine imitation of resignation, and that through some untraceable process of transition she was now taking more comfort in the opinions of this insinuating stranger than in his own tough dogmas. He rose to his feet without pulling down his waistcoat, but with a wrinkled grin at the inconsistency of women. "'Well, sir, Mr. Roderick's powers are nothing to me,' he said, "'nor no use he makes of them. Good or bad, he's no son of mine. But in a friendly way I'm glad to hear so fine an account of him.' I'm glad, madam, you're so satisfied with the prospect. Affection, sir, you see, must have its guarantees. He paused a moment, stroking his beard, and with his head inclined and one eye half-closed, looking at Rowland. The look was grotesque, but it was significant, and it puzzled Rowland more than it amused him. I suppose you're a very brilliant young man, he went on, very enlightened, very cultivated, quite up to the mark in the fine arts, and all that sort of thing, I'm a plain, practical old boy, content to follow an honourable profession in a free country. I didn't go off to the old world to learn my business. No one took me by the hand. I had to grease my wheels myself, and such as I am, I'm a self-made man every inch of me. 
Well, if our young friend is booked for fame and fortune, I don't suppose his going to Rome will stop him. But mind you, it won't help him such a long way either. If you have undertaken to put him through, there's a thing or two you'd better remember. The crop we gather depends upon the seed we sow. He may be the biggest genius of the age. His potatoes won't come up without his hoeing them. If he takes things so almighty easy as, well, as one or two young fellows of genius I've had under my eye, his produce will never gain the prize. Take the word for it of a man who has made his way inch by inch, and doesn't believe that we'll wake up to find our work done because we've lain all night at dreaming of it. Anything worth doing is devilish hard to do. If your young protege finds things easy, and has a good time, and says he likes the life, it's a sign that, as I may say, you had better step round to the office and look at the books. That's all I desire to remark. No offence intended. I hope you'll have a first-rate time." Rowland could honestly reply that this seemed pregnant sense, and he offered Mr. Stryker a friendly handshake as the latter withdrew. But Mr. Stryker's rather grim view of matters cast a momentary shadow on his companions, and Mrs. Hudson seemed to feel that it necessitated between them some little friendly agreement not to be overawed. Rowland sat for some time longer, partly because he wished to please the two women, and partly because he was strangely pleased himself. There was something touching in their unworldly fears and diffident hopes, something almost terrible in the way poor little Mrs. Hudson seemed to flutter and quiver with intense maternal passion. She put forth one timid conversational venture after another, and asked Rowland a number of questions about himself, his age, his family, his occupations, his tastes, his religious opinions. Rowland had an odd feeling at last that she had begun to consider him very exemplary, and that she might make later some perturbing discovery. He tried, therefore, to invent something that would prepare her to find him fallible. But he could think of nothing. It only seemed to him that Miss Garland secretly mistrusted him, and that he must leave her to render him the service, after he had gone, of making him the object of a little firm derogation. Mrs. Hudson talked with low-voiced eagerness about her son. "'He's very lovable, sir, I assure you. When you come to know him, you'll find him very lovable. He's a little spoiled, of course. He has always done with me as he pleased. But he's a good boy. I'm sure he's a good boy. And everyone thinks him very attractive. I'm sure he'd be noticed anywhere. Don't you think he's very handsome, sir? He features his poor father. I had another. Perhaps you've been told.' He was killed." And the poor little lady bravely smiled, for fear of doing worse. He was a very fine boy, but very different from Roderick. Roderick is a little strange. He has never been an easy boy. Sometimes I feel like the goose. Wasn't it a goose, dear? And startled by the audacity of her comparison, she appealed to Miss Garland. The goose or the hen who hatched a swan's egg. I have never been able to give him what he needs. I have always thought that in more, in more brilliant circumstances, he might find his place and be happy. But at the same time I was afraid of the world for him. It was so large and dangerous and dreadful. No doubt I know very little about it. I never suspected, I confess, that it contained persons of such liberality as yours." Rowland replied that evidently she had done the world but scanty justice. 
No, objected Miss Garland after a pause. It is like something in a fairy tale. What, pray? You're coming here all unknown, so rich and so polite, and carrying off my cousin in a golden cloud. If this was badinage, Miss Garland had the best of it, for Roland almost fell amusing silently over the question whether there was a possibility of irony in that transparent gaze. Before he withdrew, Mrs. Hudson made him tell her again that Roderick's powers were extraordinary. He had inspired her with a clinging, caressing faith in his wisdom. "'He will really do great things?' she asked. "'The very greatest?' "'I see no reason in his talent itself why he should not.' "'Well, we'll think of that as we sit here alone,' she rejoined. "'Mary and I will sit here and talk about it.' "'So I give him up,' she went on, as he was going. I'm sure you'll be the best of friends to him, but if you should ever forget him, or grow tired of him, or lose your interest in him, and he should come to any harm or any trouble, please, sir, remember, and she paused with a tremulous voice, remember, my dear madam, that he is all I have, that he is everything, and that it would be very terrible. In so far as I can help him, he shall succeed, was all Roland could say. He turned to Miss Garland to bid her good-night, and she rose and put out her hand. She was very straightforward, but he could see that if she was too modest to be bold, she was much too simple to be shy. "'Have you no charge to lay upon me?' he asked, to ask her something. She looked at him a moment, and then, although she was not shy, she blushed. "'Make him do his best,' she said. Roland noted the soft intensity with which the words were uttered. "'Do you take a great interest in him?' he demanded. "'Certainly.' "'Then, if he will not do his best for you, he will not do it for me.' She turned away with another blush, and Roland took his leave. He walked homeward, thinking of many things. The great Northampton elms interarched far above in the darkness, but the moon had risen and through scattered apertures was hanging the dusky vault with its silver lamps. There seemed to Roland something intensely serious in the scene in which he had just taken part. He had laughed and talked and braved it out in self-defence, but when he reflected that he was really meddling with the simple stillness of this little New England home, and that he had ventured to disturb so much living security in the interest of a far-away fantastic hypothesis, he paused, amazed at his temerity. It was true, as Cecilia had said, that for an unofficious man it was a singular position. There stirred in his mind an odd feeling of annoyance with Roderick, for having thus peremptorily enlisted his sympathies. As he looked up and down the long vista, and saw the clear white houses glancing here and there in the broken moonshine, he could almost have believed that the happiest lot for any man was to make the most of life in some such tranquil spot as that. Here were kindness, comfort, safety the warning voice of duty, the perfect hush of temptation. And as Roland looked along the arch of silvered shadow, and out into the lucid air of the American night, which seemed so doubly vast, somehow and strange and nocturnal, he felt like declaring that here was beauty too, beauty sufficient for an artist not to starve upon it. As he stood lost in the darkness, he presently heard a rapid tread on the other side of the road, accompanied by a loud, jubilant whistle, 
and in a moment a figure emerged into an open gap of moonshine. He had no difficulty in recognizing Hudson, who was presumably returning from a visit to Cecilia. Roderick stopped suddenly, and stared up at the moon with his face vividly illumined. He broke out into a snatch of song. The splendor falls on castle walls and snowy summits old in story. And with the great musical roll of his voice he went swinging off into the darkness again, as if his thoughts had lent him wings. He was dreaming of the inspiration of foreign lands, of castled crags and historic landscapes. What a pity, after all, thought Roland, as he went his own way, that he shouldn't have a taste of it. It had been a very just remark of Cecilia's that Roderick would change with a change in his circumstances. Roland had telegraphed to New York for another berth on his steamer, and from the hour the answer came, Hudson's spirits rose to incalculable heights. He was radiant with good humor, and his kindly jollity seemed the pledge of a brilliant future. He had forgiven his old enemies and forgotten his old grievances, and seemed every way reconciled to a world in which he was going to count as an active force. He was inexhaustibly loquacious and fantastic, and as Cecilia said, he had suddenly become so good that it was only to be feared he was going to start not for Europe, but for heaven. He took long walks with Roland, who felt more and more the fascination of what he would have called his giftedness. Roland returned several times to Mrs. Hudson, and found the two ladies doing their best to be happy in their companion's happiness. Miss Garland, he thought, was succeeding better than her demeanour on his first visit had promised. He tried to have some especial talk with her, but her extreme reserve forced him to content himself with such responses to his rather urgent overtures as might be extracted from a keenly attentive smile. It must be confessed, however, that if the response was vague, the satisfaction was great, and that Roland, after his second visit, kept seeing a lurking reflection of this smile in the most unexpected places. It seemed strange that she should please him so well, at so slender a cost, but please him she did, prodigiously, and his pleasure had a quality altogether new to him. It made him restless, and a trifle melancholy. He walked about absently, wondering and wishing. He wondered, among other things, why fate should have condemned him to make the acquaintance of a girl whom he would make a sacrifice to know better, just as he was leaving the country for years. It seemed to him that he was turning his back on a chance of happiness, happiness of a sort of which the slenderest germ should be cultivated. He asked himself whether, feeling as he did, if he had only himself to please, he would give up his journey and wait. He had Roderick to please now, for whom disappointment would be cruel, but he said to himself that certainly, if there were no Roderick in the case, the ship should sail without him. He asked Hudson several questions about his cousin, but Roderick, confidential on most points, seemed to have reasons of his own for being reticent on this one. His measured answers quickened Roland's curiosity, for Miss Garland, with her own irritating half-suggestions, had only to be a subject of guarded illusion in others to become intolerably interesting. He learned from Roderick that she was the daughter of a country minister, a far-away cousin of his mother, settled in another part of the state, that she was one of half a dozen daughters, that the family was very poor, 
and that she had come a couple of months before to pay his mother a long visit. "'It is to be a very long one now,' he said, "'for it is settled that she is to remain while I am away.'" The fermentation of contentment in Roderick's soul reached its climax a few days before the young men were to make their farewells. He had been sitting with his friends on Cecilia's veranda, but for half an hour past he had said nothing. Lounging back against a vine-wreathed column, and gazing idly at the stars, he kept caroling softly to himself, with that indifference to ceremony for which he always found allowance, and which in him had a sort of pleading grace. At last, springing up, "'I want to strike out hard!' he exclaimed. "'I want to do something violent, to let off steam!' "'I'll tell you what to do this lovely weather,' said Cecilia. "'Give a picnic!' It can be as violent as you please, and it will have the merit of leading off our emotion into a safe channel as well as yours. Roderick laughed uproariously at Cecilia's very practical remedy for his sentimental need, but a couple of days later, nevertheless, the picnic was given. It was to be a family party, but Roderick, in his magnanimous geniality, insisted on inviting Mr. Stryker, a decision which Rowland mentally applauded. "'And we'll have Mrs. Stryker, too,' he said, "'if she'll come, to keep my mother in countenance. "'And at any rate we'll have Miss Stryker, the divine Petronella.' The young lady thus denominated formed, with Mrs. Hudson, Miss Garland, and Cecilia, the feminine half of the company. Mr. Stryker presented himself, sacrificing a morning's work, with a magnanimity greater even than Roderick's and foreign support was further secured in the person of Mr. Whitefoot, the young Orthodox minister. Roderick had chosen the feasting-place, he knew it well, and had passed many a summer afternoon there, lying at his length on the grass, and gazing at the blue undulations of the horizon. It was a meadow on the edge of a wood, with mossy rocks protruding through the grass, and a little lake on the other side. It was a cloudless August day. Roland always remembered it, and the scene, and everything that was said and done, with extraordinary distinctness. Roderick surpassed himself in friendly jollity, and at one moment, when exhilaration was at the highest, was seen in Mr. Stryker's high white hat, drinking champagne from a broken teacup to Mr. Stryker's health. Miss Stryker had her father's pale blue eye. She was dressed as if she were going to sit for her photograph, and remained for a long time with Roderick, on a little promontory overhanging the lake. Mrs. Hudson sat all day with a little meek, apprehensive smile. She was afraid of an accident, though unless Miss Stryker, who indeed was a little of a romp, should push Roderick into the lake, it was hard to see what accident could occur. Mrs. Hudson was as neat and crisp and uncrumpled at the end of the festival as at the beginning. Mr. Whitefoot, who but a twelvemonth later became a convert to episcopacy, and was already cultivating a certain conversational sonority, devoted himself to Cecilia. He had a little book in his pocket, out of which he read to at intervals, lying stretched at her feet, and it was a lasting joke with Cecilia afterwards that she would never tell what Mr. Whitefoot's little book had been. Roland had placed himself near Miss Garland, while the feasting went forward on the grass. She wore a so-called gypsy hat, a little straw hat tied down over her ears, so as to cast her eyes into shadow by a ribbon passing outside of it. When the company dispersed after lunch, 
He proposed to her to take a stroll in the wood. She hesitated a moment, and looked toward Mrs. Hudson, as if for permission to leave her. But Mrs. Hudson was listening to Mr. Stryker, who sat gossiping to her with relaxed magniloquence, his waistcoat unbuttoned and his hat on his nose. "'You can give your cousin your society at any time,' said Rowland. "'But me, perhaps, you'll never see again.' "'Why, then, should we wish to be friends if nothing is to come of it?' she asked, with homely logic. But by this time she had consented, and they were treading the fallen pine-needles. "'Oh, one must take all one can get,' said Rowland. "'If we can be friends for half an hour, it's so much gained.' "'Do you expect never to come back to Northampton again?' "'Never is a good deal to say, but I go to Europe for a long stay.' Do you prefer it so much to your own country? I will not say that, but I have the misfortune to be a rather idle man, and in Europe the burden of idleness is less heavy than here. She was silent for a few minutes, then at last. In that, then, we are better than Europe, she said. To a certain point Roland agreed with her, but he demurred to make her say more. Wouldn't it be better, she asked, to work to get reconciled to America? than to go to Europe to get reconciled to idleness? Doubtless, but you know work is hard to find. I come from a little place where everyone has plenty, said Miss Garland. We all work, everyone I know works. And really, she added presently, I look at you with curiosity. You were the first unoccupied man I ever saw. Don't look at me too hard, said Roland, smiling. I shall sink into the earth. What is the name of your little place? West Nazareth, said Miss Garland, with her usual sobriety. It is not so very little, though it's smaller than Northampton. I wonder whether I could find any work in West Nazareth, Rowland said. You would not like it, Miss Garland declared reflectively. Though there are far finer woods there than this, we have miles and miles of woods. I might chop down trees, said Rowland, that is, if you allow it. Allow it? Why, where should we get our firewood? Then, noticing that he had spoken jestingly, she glanced at him askance, though with no visible diminution of her gravity. Don't you know how to do anything? Have you no profession? Roland shook his head. Absolutely none. What do you do all day? Nothing worth relating. That's why I am going to Europe. There, at least, if I do nothing, I shall see a great deal and if I'm not a producer, I shall at any rate be an observer. Can't we observe everywhere? Certainly, and I really think that in that way I make the most of my opportunities. Though I confess, he continued, that I often remember there are things to be seen here to which I probably haven't done justice. I should like, for instance, to see West Nazareth. She looked round at him, open-eyed, not apparently that she exactly supposed he was jesting, for the expression of such a desire was not necessarily facetious, but as if he must have spoken with an ulterior motive. In fact, he had spoken from the simplest of motives. The girl beside him pleased him unspeakably, and suspecting that her charm was essentially her own, and not reflected from social circumstance, he wished to give himself the satisfaction of contrasting her with the meagre influences of her education. Miss Garland's second movement was to take him at his word. Since you are free to do as you please, why don't you go there? I am not free to do as I please now. I have offered your cousin to bear him company to Europe. 
he has accepted with enthusiasm, and I cannot retract. Are you going to Europe simply for his sake? Roland hesitated a moment. I think I may almost say so. Miss Garland walked along in silence. Do you mean to do a great deal for him? she asked at last. What I can, but my power of helping him is very small beside his power of helping himself. For a moment she was silent again. You are very generous, she said, almost solemnly. No, I am simply very shrewd. Roderick will repay me. It's an investment. At first, I think, he added shortly afterwards, you would not have paid me that compliment. You distrusted me. She made no attempt to deny it. I didn't see why you should wish to make Roderick discontented. I thought you were rather frivolous. You did me injustice. I don't think I'm that. It was because you are unlike other men, those at least whom I have seen. In what way? Why, as you describe yourself, you have no duties, no profession, no home. You live for your pleasure. That's all very true, and yet I maintain I'm not frivolous. I hope not, said Miss Garland simply. They had reached a point where the woodpath forked and put forth two divergent tracks which lost themselves in a vergerous tangle. Miss Garland seemed to think that the difficulty of choice between them was a reason for giving them up and turning back. Rowland thought otherwise, and detected agreeable grounds for preference in the left-hand path. As a compromise, they sat down on a fallen log. Looking about him, Rowland espied a curious wild shrub, with a spotted crimson leaf. He went and plucked a spray of it and brought it to Miss Garland. He had never observed it before, but she immediately called it by its name. She expressed surprise at his not knowing it. It was extremely common. He presently brought her a specimen of another delicate plant, with a little blue-streaked flower. I suppose that's common, too, he said, but I have never seen it, or noticed it at least. She answered that this one was rare, and meditated a moment before she could remember its name. At last she recalled it, and expressed surprise at his having found the plant in the woods. She supposed it grew only in open marshes. Roland complimented her on her fund of useful information. "'It's not especially useful,' she answered, "'but I like to know the names of plants, as I do those of my acquaintances.' When we walk in the woods at home, which we do so much, it seems as unnatural not to know what to call the flowers, as it would be to see someone in the town with whom we were not on speaking terms. Apropos of frivolity, Roland said, I'm sure you have very little of it, unless at West Nazareth it is considered frivolous to walk in the woods and nod to the nodding flowers. Do kindly tell me a little about yourself, and to compel her to begin. I know you come of a race of theologians, he went on. No, she replied, deliberating. They are not theologians, though they are ministers. We don't take a very firm stand upon doctrine. We are practical, rather. We write sermons and preach them, but we do a great deal of hard work beside. And of this hard work, what has your share been? The hardest part, doing nothing. What do you call nothing? I taught school a while. I must make the most of that. But I confess I didn't like it. Otherwise, I have only done little things at home as they turned up. What kind of things? Oh, every kind. If you had seen my home, you would understand. 
Roland would have liked to make her specify, but he felt a more urgent need to respect her simplicity than he had ever felt to defer to the complex circumstance of certain other women. To be happy, I imagine, he contented himself with saying, you need to be occupied. You need to have something to expend yourself on. That is not so true as it once was, now that I am older. I am sure I am less impatient of leisure. Certainly, these two months that I have been with Mrs. Hudson, I have had a terrible amount of it. And yet I have liked it. And now that I am probably to be with her all the while that her son is away, I look forward to more with a resignation that I don't quite know what to make of. It is settled, then, that you are to remain with your cousin? It depends upon their writing from home that I may stay, but that is probable. Only I must not forget, she said, rising, that the ground for my doing so is that she be not left alone. I am glad to know, said Rowland, that I shall probably often hear about you. I assure you I shall often think about you. These words were half impulsive, half deliberate. They were the simple truth, and he had asked himself why he should not tell her the truth. And yet they were not all of it. Her hearing the rest would depend upon the way she received this. She received it not only, as Rowland foresaw, without a shadow of coquetry, of any apparent thought of listening to it gracefully, but with a slight movement of nervous deprecation, which seemed to betray itself in the quickening of her step. Evidently, if Rowland was to take pleasure in hearing about her, it would have to be a highly disinterested pleasure. She answered nothing, and Rowland, too, as he walked beside her, was silent. But as he looked along the shadow-woven wood-path, what he was really facing was a level three years of disinterestedness. He ushered them in by talking composed civility, until he had brought Miss Garland back to her companions. He saw her but once again. He was obliged to be in New York a couple of days before sailing, and it was arranged that Roderick should overtake him at the last moment. The evening before he left Northampton he went to say farewell to Mrs. Hudson. The ceremony was brief. Rowland soon perceived that the poor little lady was in the melting mood, and as he dreaded her tears, he compressed a multitude of solemn promises into a silent handshake and took his leave. Miss Garland, she had told him, was in the back garden with Roderick. He might go out to them. He did so, and as he drew near, he heard Roderick's high-pitched voice ringing behind the shrubbery. In a moment, emerging, he found Miss Garland leaning against a tree, with her cousin before her talking with great emphasis. He asked pardon for interrupting them, and said he wished only to bid her good-bye. She gave him her hand, and he made her his bow in silence. "'Don't forget,' he said to Roderick, as he turned away, "'and don't, in this company, repent of your bargain.' "'I shall not let him,' said Miss Garland, with something very like gaiety. I shall see that he is punctual. He must go. I owe you an apology for having doubted that he ought to. And in spite of the dusk, Roland could see that she had an even finer smile than he had supposed. Roderick was punctual, eagerly punctual, and they went. Roland for several days was occupied with material cares, and lost sight of his sentimental perplexities. But they only slumbered, and they were sharply awakened. The weather was fine, and the two young men always sat together upon deck late into the evening. One night toward the last they were at the stern of the great ship, watching her grind the solid blackness of ocean into phosphorescent foam. 
They talked on these occasions of everything conceivable, and had the air of having no secrets from each other. But it was on Roderick's conscience that this air belied him, and he was too frank by nature, moreover, for permanent reticence on any point. "'I must tell you something,' he said at last. "'I should like you to know it, and you will be so glad to know it. Besides, it's only a question of time. Three months hence, probably, you would have guessed it. I am engaged to Mary Garland.' Roland sat staring. Though the sea was calm, it seemed to him that the ship gave a great dizzying lurch. But in a moment he contrived to answer coherently, "'Engaged to Miss Garland? I never suppose—I never imagined—' "'That I was in love with her,' Roderick interrupted. "'Neither did I until this last fortnight. But you came and put me into such ridiculous good humour that I felt an extraordinary desire to tell some woman that I adored her.' Miss Garland is a magnificent girl. You know her too little to do her justice. I have been quietly learning to know her these past three months, and have been falling in love with her without being conscious of it. It appeared when I spoke to her that she had a kindness for me. So the thing was settled. I must, of course, make some money before we can marry. It's rather droll, certainly, to engage oneself to a girl whom one is going to leave the next day for years. We shall be condemned for some time to come to do a terrible deal of abstract thinking about each other. But I wanted her blessing on my career, and I could not help asking for it. Unless a man is unnaturally selfish, he needs to work for someone else than himself, and I am sure I shall run a smoother and swifter course for knowing that that fine creature is waiting at Northampton for news of my greatness. If ever I am a dull companion and over-addicted to moping, remember in justice to me that I am in love, and that my sweetheart is five thousand miles away." Roland listened to all this with a sort of feeling that fortune had played him an elaborately devised trick. It had lured him out into mid-ocean, and smoothed the sea and stilled the winds, and given him a singularly sympathetic comrade and then it had turned and delivered him a thumping blow in mid-chest. Yes, he said, after an attempt at the usual formal congratulation, you certainly ought to do better, with Miss Garland waiting for you at Northampton. Roderick, now that he had broken ground, was eloquent, and rung a hundred changes on the assurance that he was a very happy man. Then at last, suddenly, his climax was a yawn, and he declared that he must go to bed. Roland let him go alone, and sat there late, between sea and sky. End of chapter 2b